0: So it's a really exciting time to have, you know, dry capital, dry powder at the ready to go and replace or go and fill the hole that's being left by the CMBS market, regional banks. That hole is likely to expand, though it might not. But certainly today it's big enough for there to be new entrants into the space um, for people to get really outsized return for the risk they are implicitly taking.
1: Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. It's Monday, October 2nd, and we're your hosts. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So today we're speaking to Gabrielle Kahana and John Blackwell. They run Ark House, an activist investment firm that finds opportunities to take public REITs private. In 2021, they made a $2.4 billion bid for Columbia Property Trust. It was ultimately acquired by PIMCO, but it is an example of the type of business they're in. So we'll get into that in
2: a bit. But first, the news. So lots of fraud in New York last week. I think we should start with Trump. Right. So a New York judge ruled
1: last Tuesday that Trump had committed fraud by inflating the value of some of his real estate assets. The ruling also stripped Trump control
2: of some of his signature New York properties. And that stems from a lawsuit filed by Attorney General Letitia James, who argued Trump had inflated his property values by $2.2 billion dollars.
1: Right. And the New York Times on Friday laid out which assets Trump could lose control of. His attorney said he planned to appeal the decision.
2: Yeah. So how many properties are we looking at?
1: It's nearly a dozen owned or partly owned by Trump or Trump Organization. But the big ones are Trump Tower, which holds his triplex apartment. On that one, he inflated the value by claiming the apartment was three times its actual size. Also, 40 Wall Street, a.k.a. the Trump building. This is the big fish as far as the inflated values go. In 2012, it was appraised at $527 million, But to the IRS, it was only valued at $16.7 million. And like other office buildings, it's also struggled with rising vacancy rates and maintenance cost. It landed on a lender watch list in February. And last month,
2: Fitch Ratings downgraded the debt on the tower. Meanwhile, a New York-based attorney, Robert Wisnicki, pled guilty to charges tied to a $19 million real estate Ponzi scheme he was running. A quick refresher, given it's been a while since the
1: Bernie Madoff scandal, a Ponzi scheme is a type of fraud in which early investors are paid with money pulled from later investors. It creates the illusion of
2: profitability. Right, so Wisnicki was running an investment business. Clients would entrust him with their money, and he would represent them in real estate deals. Eventually, though, those clients started losing money, but Wisnicki didn't tell his clients that. Instead, he tapped funds from other clients' accounts to cover up those losses. He also used money from new clients to pay investors who had lost money. So what's the sentencing there? So we know that the charges carry a maximum sentence of five years each. There's a few more charges, actually, including conspiracy to commit money laundering. But he agreed to pay $18.8 million in restitution
1: And there's a big mess at the New Yorker Hotel. The latest is a man named Mickey Barreto seemingly transferred the deed to the Hell's Kitchen Hotel himself for about $400 million. The commercial observer had that story. And the kicker here is that it's not the first time this has happened. You're kidding. So Barreto had previously claimed he owned the property after a one night stay. He tried to use rent stabilization laws to do so. Rent stabilization law can get incredibly wonky, as you know all too well, Susanna. Yes, that's true. (laughs) So I'll try to put it simply. The rule he cited allows tenants to request six-month leases at rent-stabilized hotels and stay indefinitely. So back in 2019, he claimed the Unification Church, which owns the hotel, had broken the law by denying him a rent-stabilized lease. He sued in housing court and got a decision that gave him possession of the, quote,
2: subject premises. Mm, Okay, yeah, I smell a gray area in those quotes.
1: Yeah, so the hotel was never subdivided, he said. So what affects the room affects the entire lot. Anyway, he ended up losing that decision in court. So then he did the $400 million transfer from a firm
2: he owned To himself. It's to be determined how that all plays out. And stepping back into the Trump-related universe, Kushner Companies, along with Abby Rosen's RFR, defaulted on an $180 million loan backed by a Dumbo office campus this month. The borrowers failed to repay the loan at maturity. And what was interesting about this story to me was the default sort of stands out as an indicator of how office landlords are struggling across the board to find new debt in this market. Talk more about that. Yeah, so RFR and Kushner had been shopping around for refinancing, but they couldn't close on enough debt. And that's happening across the office market. Valuations are way down. Sometimes they're down so low that the building is valued at less than its debt balance. And at the same time, lenders are requiring lower leverage loans for refinancings, which means landlords need to find additional debt sources or they need to kick in more of their own capital. And the latter you know, is a bit inadvisable at this point because the expectation is the office market is just in a downward spiral. It's the whole throwing good money after bad sort of thing. Right. So what's the status of that loan now? Are they facing foreclosure on the building? No, not yet, from what we can see. They asked for a five-year extension, and it's possible their lender may go for it. We've heard that extend and pretend is definitely happening. But then we've also seen other lenders try to get borrowers to pay off whatever they can and hand over the keys. Among lenders, the idea is the losses now will be less severe than the losses in five years, for instance.
1: And we'll talk a little bit more about the office market in our conversation with Arkhouse. Let's jump into that now.
0: I am Gabriel Kahana, co-managing partner
3: at ArcHouse. I'm John Blackwell and also co-managing partner of ArChouse. And uh, thanks so much for having us today.
1: So tell me what Ark House does. You know, give me give me the short few sentence pitch.
0: We are an opportunistic real estate investor focused on the dislocation between private and public markets for real estate.
3: Uh, what that really means is that we are looking for interesting investment opportunities in the public markets that are really uh, illustrated by where private buyers will buy those assets. So today we're just seeing a huge dislocation between the public and private markets. And that's where we're focusing a lot of our efforts because we think that's the best sort of risk-adjusted return for effort and invested dollars.
1: So tell me a little bit about Ark history. How did you guys get started and what market were you really trying to capture or kind of what moment in time, I guess, were you trying to take advantage of?
0: Yeah, so I think it's um it's exactly that it's uh, this moment in time which we think is a lot you know will extend on for much longer than a moment as and has been extending for some time, wherein there's a big pricing gap uh, between what private investors are willing or interested in buying real estate for and what the public market is implying um, with respect to real estate pricing and valuation, um, and we think that's kind of multi. Uh, multi-determined. It's driven by a number of different factors, but it's expressed in just share prices wildly dislocated off from uh, the private pricing that
3: private equity will deliver.
1: So tell me why why you think REITs are undervalued in this moment.
3: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's a few reasons. I think there's been sort of this secular trend in public markets generally which are impacting the REITs um, and that's just the composition of shareholders so you know 20 years ago uh, the prevalence of passive index funds and asset managers was was not as significant as it is today so you'll look at many of these REITs and their largest shareholders are the state streets the black rocks of the world um, and not necessarily people that are underwriting and owning these companies for the sake of their underlying assets but mo- more because they're looking for uh, an allocation to a sector and and because of that and sort of the mismatch of duration of those public market investors and long-term investors of hard assets and real estate you know when there's moments of volatility those values can be really distorted from one market to the other and we also think that in addition to that just generally because you have investors that make up such a large percentage of ownership that are pretty detached from the underlying values, we sort of see this sort of ongoing and consistent valuation gap between the public and private markets over the last 15 years. Um, And that is also sort of coincidentally happened at the same time you have record levels of private equity being raised to own what previously was an alternative asset class and is now a really mainstream must own asset for many of these private equity groups. Um, and so, you know, it's really interesting to see increased capital, increased demand from the private side, sort of simultaneously with a waning of interest and focus from the public market side. And I think that's really the, the core opportunity that we're, we're focused on. And we think there's going to be sort of a continued uh, stratification of these two markets, which will persist.
1: And do you think that this was, you know, I want to go back to 2020. Do you think a lot of this was exacerbated by the pandemic?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, it's hard to talk about 2020 without um, talking about the stimulus that quickly ensued thereafter. Um, You know, $5 trillion has an effect on the market. But firstly, of course, the pandemic um, had a really painful impact um, directly resulting from uh, a massive change in consumer behavior, um, the way people consume real estate um, with respect to our industry, of course. and in times of turbulence, of uncertainty, of change, and that's really, um, you know, March 2020 was the beginning of just massive fundamental changes in the way people behave. You have a bigger dislocation of these two pricing sets. Um, There's a lot of opacity into the future, right? In the beginning of COVID there was, and there still is to a great degree, but even then it's hard to, you know, it's hard to imagine more opacity than there is today, but then there was, there really was more. We had no idea where the world was going. Um, and that, uh, that creates a lot of fear, panic, concern in uh, you know, on the part of public shareholders that tend to kind of over-exaggerate um, bad expectations to the downside uh, in the public market, not across the board, um, but in certain instances. And that can dislocate the pricing of assets as implied by share price compared to again, what private equity is willing to pay for it. Um, and, uh, and certainly uh, we do think that COVID um, kind of fed f- fuel to the fire of this already secular uh, divergence.
1: So you mentioned, you know, it's it is hard to talk about 2020 without then talking about the stimulus but also the frenzy that happened in 2021. And part of that was this like huge like flurry of SPAC IPOs, special purpose acquisition companies, and you guys seem to be bucking the trend right. a little bit. You know, everyone seemed to want to go public, you know, we finally it's how we work finally went public. Um can you talk a little bit about how you you know how you thought about that trend?
0: Well, you know, they're kind of like uh, natural and artificial uh, tailwinds that affect um, the market. And that was kind of the purest form of artificial market manipulation. And by the way, we've been having another one in the other uh, direction in the form of Fed funds rate over the last, um, you know, 12, 18 months as well. Um, but when the government comes in and just, Uh, effectively pumps trillions of dollars, I think 1.7 or 8 trillion into companies and um, not this similar amount into households and uh, half of a trillion dollars into into healthcare, et cetera, that's going to stimulate the economy in weird ways. And certainly one of those ways is in creating um, irrational exuberance uh, around... um, uh, certain asset classes. Um, money needs to go out, right? If you're you're sort of the government's forcing dollars into your pocket, um, you have a burning hole in that pocket forcing you to put those dollars out. Um, so certainly, uh, it's our view that the market definitely whipsawed a bunch um, over the last couple of years. First, you know, suffering real pain because of um, the pandemic, and then um, recovering really extremely in the other direction thanks to stimulus and now kind of on the backswing uh, uh, thanks to the federal government's reaction to a hyperinflationary environment. All of those swings create a really terrible environment or a wonderful environment if you're investing in our specific strategy ripe with opportunities of dislocation between two pricing sets for real estate.
1: So looking, you know, we've spent some time talking about 2020 and 2021, but looking to the future, there's been some research that, you know, I'm specifically referencing Office, but that values will plummet 500 billion in the next decade, given the prevalence of remote work and just like a general and, you know, lack of investor appetite for Office specifically. How do you see that trend affecting both, you know, maybe we can start with the public REITs, but also private real estate companies going forward?
3: Yeah no so I think you know uh, the the demise of offices you know over the last couple of years is like one of the most talked about things in commercial real estate generally um, and I think for good reasons and and many uh, on many points and um, very speculative on many others right I mean there's there is a perfect storm for the sector right now in that there is still uncertainty on the revenue side in terms of how much long term demand has been hurt or muted as a result of remote work, hybrid work, and things like that. And, I, and, I, and I'd venture to say that, you know, the, the variables that will ultimately determine where that levels off is like to be determined. Like, will we have a massive recession? Will, you know, what happens with the Fed funds rate? Like, there's so many variables that are ultimately going to impact what stabilized, normalized office demand looks like coming out of this, that it's very hard to know. And so I think there's good reason to have uncertainty on the, the revenue side. Um, and then coupled with that in the last you know 18 months, increased interest rates, inflation concerns, sort of squeezing the sector on both sides. So I think from an institutional investor perspective, there really is no demand to be an investor or buyer of office today. And I think that is really driving so much uncertainty because there are no data points. There's no healthy transaction market. People don't feel that they have a line of sight to where the bottom is. But what I will say is that notwithstanding there not being institutional demand at scale for the asset class, um, the shrewd high net worth family offices are certainly circling the sector as "I'm, I'm starting to get ready to pick my spots. And so like, you know, we're out in the market constantly as part of what we do to gauge where investors actually are for different assets. And it's been a tough go of it. But what I would say is the looking ahead and being optimistic is that there does seem to be more optimism about line of sight in terms of where interest rates are going to stabilize. Um, and that is creating, I think a situation where people are starting to be able to dimension at what price they would become a buyer of the sector. Um, and listen, I think, you know, our house view is that offers is here to stay the kind and quality and location will very much dictate, I think the ultimate outcome. And I think with respect to the public REITs, um, there are some that just have portfolios that largely are non-economic to you know continue investing in, whereas others have spectacular trophy assets that are irreplaceable that domestic and institutional or international capital will have significant demand going forward. And so you know it's like the cliche tale of two cities. I mean I think it's probably like a tale of three or four in office, um, but it's certainly a sector that we're spending a lot of time on. Our you know our generic approach is. You know, what we like about our strategy is that we don't have to make medium and long-term bets on what any asset class is going to be worth. Instead, we're making sort of short to medium-term bets on where people are going to buy those assets today. And there's no doubt, like, Office is one of the most depressed asset classes. And the question is, at what level are there buyers in, in scale? And we just haven't sort of found that level yet.
1: Got it. Do you think that there's... Um... I feel like I'm kind of answering my own question here, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, do you feel like that there's more opportunity, you know, more space for private credit investors to be more opportunistic? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um it, yeah, I definitely agree with you, Isabella. I think um, uh, even if we weren't led to that very answer, I think we'd both resoundingly say yes. It's a really exciting time to have, you know, dry capital, dry powder at the ready to go and replace or go and fill the hole that's being left by the CMBS market, regional banks. That hole is likely to expand, though it might not. But certainly today it's big enough for there to be new entrants into the space um, for people to get really outsized return for the risk they are implicitly taking.
3: Yeah, I I would say like one follow-up point on that is that, you know, I think the general consensus is like that is where the opportunity in real estate is today. It's through the debt, it's in credit. But I would say it is also the, the worst kept secret. So you have not only all the traditional credit funds ready to go for that opportunity, but basically every private equity group that typically buys buildings for the equity position are converting into hybrid and bridge sort of investment vehicles. Or, or basically just focusing exclusively there. So I would say um, one, you know, I think there is a concern that the opportunity at scale may not present itself, but two also when the opportunities do present themselves, there is an insane amount of dry capital, of really shrewd guys. So there, there is also a thought that, you know, the yields and returns may get sort of competed away um, just given the amount of dollars chasing those opportunities. And there's just every everyone is starving for transactions across the board so i think you know there is a real chance that when this this you know disruption occurs that it, it could be sort of snuffed out pretty quickly
1: are you concerned uh, okay so f- a few months ago you know tpg bought angelo gordon and we're seeing a lot more consolidation and you know private credit companies like boosting their real estate kind of focused capabilities do you think, you know, how will that affect you in terms of competition?
0: So those are, um, those are really our prospective partners as we see it in this business. Um, we, are, uh, we don't view them as competitors, again, as much as, um, as partners uh, in this business plan of giving shareholders, you know, holding uh, publicly traded companies that have a lot of real estate on balance sheet, big premiums uh, on their stock. So, the more uh, kind of smart institutional um, uh, credit and equity available
3: for real estate, um, the better for us and in turn for shareholders. Like, generically, like our playbook is to identify a stock that's trading at 10 that we think the underlying real estate's worth 20 and bringing one of those large groups who's interested in owning all those assets and putting a bid in to privatize the company at 15. So we're, you know, we're making money for shareholders from 10 to 15, the private real estate buyers are really excited that there's a lot of meat on the bone and that they can make outsized returns because they're buying something that should be worth 20 at 15. And I think those opportunities we're seeing across sector, across different sort of market cap sizes. And um, yeah, to to Gabrielle's point, I think those large, medium and small institutions are all sort of partners and collaborators in, in this ultimate business plan of ours. It's one of the few experiences in life where I think competition is actually really additive. Um, you know, if if we bring a bid to a company and someone's has lower cost of capital is able to bid more, like, yeah, we're going to be upset that we didn't end up with those assets. But like, that's the right outcome for shareholders. We're, you know, facilitating value being unlocked where it should be. And um, I think that's, it's a really unique uh, thing, and I, I'm glad you hit on it. It's, uh, competition is additive in the strategy, which is uh, awesome.
1: So, you know, talking about bids, I wanted to talk about your bid in 2021 for Columbia Property Trust. So ultimately, they were acquired by PIMCO. What were you excited about there and what really drew you to the firm?
0: Yeah, so again, kind of what excited us about that opportunity was, is what, what excites us about um, the deals we're working on today. Um, which is not that we have, we being um, the, you know, investment committee at our house has a view that these assets are worth a specific number over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, but rather that there is sufficient private equity demand for these assets at a sufficient premium to give the shareholders, including us, a big premium on the stock. And that's, that's really kind of singularly the focus. It's, so in that deal, we had um, a group of private equity buyers that wanted to buy the portfolio of assets at that premium at, you know, around $19 a share. Um, and that enabled us to buy a position in the stock and to engage management on our collective behalf to try and put the company in play and ultimately try and and win and, and buy those assets at that premium. Um but it, it wasn't that we were necessarily bullish on office. We did um have a view at the time and continue to have a view that uh that the public market tends to exaggerate pain um on the downside, you know, and and, and by the way, to a large degree, um exaggerate uh good news on the upside as well. But of course, with respect to office, it's been kind of a, a contrarian story, a bad news story for the last couple of years. And it. It was then that was kind of the first doubt of it, um, and we had a consortium of buyers that wanted to own different pieces of the portfolio, um, albeit at a less levered level than ultimately um, Pimco uh, had in store. But that's what drove us to that deal, and that's what um, drove us through that deal, um, ultimately to losing to Pimco.
1: How I know that you know you touched on office with in relation to that deal. Um, Columbia Property Trust did eventually default on $1.8 billion in loans. Tell me what you kind of think about that.
0: That's real pain. <laughs> no exaggeration there. That um, that sucks. And I think that um, we did have a different capitalization in store for that deal. Um, we wanted to contract on uh, the basket and flip out of a bunch of the assets through our contract period. Um that said, I do think that, you know, kind of the the unfortunate position that PIMCO ended up in on that portfolio was um, that they were kind of riding the upswing that we were describing earlier of, of stimulus, but the office recovery wasn't fundamentally there yet. And then the downswing of the Fed kind, trying to cool inflation was, came in the form of, you know, hiking borrowing costs, effectively. And that that was a really unfortunate uh, kind of exogenous uh, impact um, that they had on the market, causing a lot of defaults across the board.
1: Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea or a guest you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking to Henry Bott, the president of Swire Properties in the U.S. We're talking about developing in South Florida. Tune in then.